This video is sponsored by the wonderful people over at Freeze Pipe, a company that has made it their mission to bring the smoothest inhalations directly to you while making post-puff coughs a thing of the past. The way they do this is with elite percolator systems combined with freezable glycerin coils that cool smoke down by over 300 degrees. Simply pop your coil into the freezer for a few minutes and get ready for the most welcoming, lung-filling experience you've ever had. I recently picked up two awesome additions to my own personal collection, the first of which being their Martini Bubbler. Absolutely stunning design, toke served ice cold, and sophisticated enough for James Bond himself. An extra wide base that houses a double showerhead percolator for top-notch filtration. They equipped this model with an upgraded revolver coil for the smoothest and chilliest inhalations ever. And to my surprise, the coil needed just under an hour in the freezer to stay frigid for an entire sesh. The second piece that I picked up was the glass blunt tip. Now this is essential for anybody that prefers to roll their own or even pull from their favorite vape pens. Ergonomic design for your hand, icy cold hits for your lungs, and versatile enough for whatever your style may be. In addition to bringing herb inhalations into the 21st century, Freezepipe has partnered with us to offer all viewers 10% off any item within their expansive catalog. Visit their website, thefreezepipe.com, and check out all they have to offer. Use the code MALEVOLENT at checkout for your discount. This is the perfect time to snag a gift for a friend or loved one, or even yourself. With the holidays coming up fast, no reason to not take advantage of this deal. Again, that's thefreezepipe.com, code MALEVOLENT for 10% off any item you find. Against the advice of my parents, I started working at a bikini coffee stand when I was freshly 18 years old and continued working there until I was 20. If you're unfamiliar with bikini coffee stands, they're a little drive-through espresso stands, usually painted in some neon color where the employees all wear lingerie or bikinis while they serve coffee. I know this sounds strange, and believe me, it is. However, the money was good. It was fun at the time, and my parents really couldn't afford to pay for my college. There's no loudspeaker where customers place their order. They simply drive up to the stand, order their drink, and make small talk as they ogle you in your skimpy ensemble. Anyway, it's kind of hard to explain, so maybe just Google it. The Seattle area has them all over the place. Within a matter of months, the boss gave me the busiest shift, the shift that began at 4 a.m. and ended at 9.30 a.m. While the coffee stand wasn't officially open until 4.30, I had to count the till, grind the espresso beans, fill up the sinks, take stock, clean if needed, etc. The coffee stand was situated in the corner of a large parking lot, sharing the enormous empty lot with only one other retailer. The other retailer didn't open until around 10 a.m. And so when I arrived, the lot was completely dark, save for one dim street lamp above the stand and another in the far off corner of the lot. I pulled up to the stand as I normally did, only this time it was my first shift alone. Normally, I would work with one other girl as the shift would get far too busy for just one person to handle. I had a routine with regular customers as I literally worked every single day. The boss didn't believe in time off, unless requested. While I worked, 
I could see cars approach the stand and know immediately what drink to prepare based on my recognition of a regular customer's vehicle. After almost a year on the morning shift, it was rare to see a new vehicle or meet a new customer. My boss was extremely strict about being fast and efficient and would have us prepare drinks in advance for our regulars while they waited in the line of cars. My boss was so strict that for the first six months of my working there, he would watch constantly on his camera system and call me on the business phone to scream at me for lack of efficiency. After this, I became so fast at preparing drinks that I guess he decided that he would save money by having me work all alone in the very early morning hours. So, like normal, I approached the stand and punched in the access code. I went inside and turned on some music right away to keep myself company. The street lamp directly above the coffee stand had burnt out a few days before, so it was rather dark outside. Coupled with the tinted sliding windows of the coffee stand and the knowledge that I was completely alone, I did feel a little creeped out, although not as terrified as I was about to feel in a few minutes. Even though the stand was technically open at 4.30, I wouldn't expect my first customer until about 4.45. I usually arrived at 4, but since it was my first shift alone, I got there a little early, 3.30, to give myself enough time to complete all of the opening tasks. My first customer was always Dave. He drove a red sports car and ordered a double cappuccino, heavy on the foam. He worked for the local Boeing plant and would brag about his high-ranking job in between awkward remarks about my body. You get used to this sort of thing after a while, but nothing could prepare me for the sort of thing that happened to me on this particular dark morning. Though many of our customers were pervy men like Dave, most of the early morning customers weren't as lecherous as one would expect. They simply needed coffee, and no other business was open as early as ours. In fact, many of my early morning customers were married women in soccer mom vans in desperate need of caffeine. I glanced up at the clock as I counted the money. It was 3.50 a.m. I finished the count and walked from the back of the stand onto the main floor. There were two steps separating the back of the stand from the main floor. The back of the stand had no windows and contained a bathroom, large refrigerator, washer, dryer, etc. This is the area where my coworkers and myself would get ready and joke around where customers couldn't see us. As soon as we walked onto the main floor where customers could see us, uniform was required, meaning lingerie or bikini, as well as heels. That morning, I was wearing a matching pink lingerie set with knit stockings. The lingerie fully covered my breast and butt and provided more coverage than a typical bikini you would see at the beach. I counted all of the syrup bottles, opened the fridge, and took stock inside. I turned on the espresso grinder and robotically poured in a bag of espresso beans. I started filling up the large commercial sink with soapy water. Music played softly on the stereo. Then I heard it. Over the noise of the faucet, coffee grinder, and the music, I wasn't sure I had heard anything at first, so I ignored it. But then it happened again. Tap, tap, tap. Someone was tapping on the sliding glass window of the stand. I wiped off my wet hands and grabbed my cell phone. 4.15 a.m. We weren't open for another 15 minutes. I checked the light switches to make sure that I didn't accidentally flip on the open sign. Along with an open sign, the stand was equipped with bright floodlights to illuminate the presence of the stand. Due to the sheer darkness that morning, 
I had contemplated turning on the floodlights when I first arrived, but it was strictly forbidden to do so until the stand was open. Without the floodlights on and through the tinted glass, I couldn't see who was on the other side. I stood there, staring at the window. Maybe it's just Dave, I rationalized to myself. Tap, tap, tap. I could hear my heart thumping in my ears. The tapping had definitely grown louder. I picked up the business phone and punched in my boss's number. He had an extensive camera system, complete with night vision, and could see in real time both inside and outside of the stand. At the very least, he could tell me who was outside. The phone rang and rang, but no answer. I finally flipped on the floodlights, walked over to the window, and saw the man, now illuminated by bright light. His head was pressed up against the glass, hands cupped around his eyes, as he tried to see in. This made me jump back. Hey, he yelled through the glass, can I get some coffee? Uh, we aren't open for another 15 minutes, I replied. My boss will be mad if I open early. Oh well, I guess I can wait. The man then walked away from the window and stepped into a small black Honda. I continued my opening duties, carefully eyeing that black Honda. At the time, I felt a false sense of security, lulled into the daily routine of my shift. However, this was different. At 4.30, I dutifully turned on the open sign and watched as the man in the black Honda drove up to the window. He was wearing a dark red baseball cap, a thermal shirt, and plaid pajama pants. I opened the sliding window. Hey, sorry about that. What can I get for you this morning? I said, trying to sound as normal as possible. The man looked at me for what felt like an eternity. What I want doesn't appear to be on the menu, he said, not looking up from my crotch. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. What did I expect working in this profession? Gentlemen? I brushed his comment aside with a laugh. We have a great white chocolate mocha. I looked around frantically. Where the f*** was the usual morning guy, Dave? I silently prayed another customer would pull up behind this guy. He looked away, stared at a steering wheel. I want you to be my maid. Excuse me? I said, not sure if I had heard him correctly. I want you to be my maid. I want you to come over to my house, wearing a maid costume with nothing underneath. I want to watch you, and if you don't clean correctly, I'm going to do whatever I want to you." He paused and gripped his steering wheel tightly. I'm not a nice guy. That's when he looked up at me and smiled. Until that point in my life, I had never seen a truly sinister smile before. I slammed the serving window shut, ran to the back of the stand hyperventilating at this point. I picked up the phone and called my boss repeatedly with no answer. I stood on the steps and peered out the window. The black Honda was gone, replaced by the familiar red of Dave's sports car. I never thought I would be happy to see pervy Dave, but here I was, rushing to the serving window to tell him what had just happened. I opened the window, all the while frantically relaying the story. Dave just laughed and muttered something about the guy dreaming. He told me that I was being paranoid, and the guy just had no filter. And for some reason, this put me at ease. Dave reached his hand out the window to place a $5 bill in my tip jar. He tipped this amount each morning. Wow, he exclaimed. You just opened and your tip jar is already full. I know you make good coffee, but it's not that great. Huh? 
I said, slamming the register shut. The tip jar rested on the outside window ledge, so customers could reach it. I made it a habit of just leaving it outside in between customers, as it could get very busy. I leaned over and looked into the metal canister. Inside the tip jar was a long white envelope that appeared to be stuffed to its capacity. My stomach turned as I knew it had to be from the guy in the black Honda. Dave, I said cautiously, it's from the guy I just told you about. I'm not opening that. Dave sipped his cappuccino and suddenly his goofy demeanor turned serious. You're right. Let me open it. I have gloves. It was late fall and rather cold this morning. Dave put on his gloves in a dramatic manner, laughing about my paranoia, and proceeded to step outside of his car. He took the envelope from the tip jar before opening it. Holy shit, he said, his eyes widening. He held up a stack of $20 bills held together by a rubber band. On the back of the stack was a folded up piece of paper. He unfolded the paper and began reading it. His eyes grew even wider, his hands shaking ever so slightly. What? What does it say? He simply said, Get dressed and call the police. I snatched the note from him, his jaw slightly agape. The note was laden with spelling errors and looked as if it was written in a child's hand. Oddly, there were rather long words that were attempted but spelled incorrectly. It said some very deranged things. There are some things too sick to mention here, but I can relay the basic message as best as I can. Some things you just never forget, even if you want to. So, here it is. You will come to my house. When you arrive, I will examine you thoroughly. I will tie you to the post, and you will be punished for what you do. Every inch of your body will be bruised and sore. Afterward, I will untie you and use you in every way possible. You can scream, but no one will hear you. This is your first payment. Upon reading this note and taking this money, you have agreed to follow through. If you do not follow through, you are a stealing, lying whore, and you will be punished more severely than if you cooperated to this initial agreement. You will clean every inch of my house. There will be no mistakes, or there will be more punishment to follow. I got dressed and called the police, and my boss, who finally answered. The police arrived, and I went to the station to explain in detail what happened. I handed them the note, along with the money for evidence. The female police officer, who appeared to be in charge, nonchalantly told me that I should probably quit my job, that this behavior was to be expected from customers. I told her that I had never experienced anything like this before. My boss reviewed the outside video footage. The footage showed a man standing outside of the coffee stand window, just staring inside. Occasionally, it showed him leaning his head into the glass and cupping his hands around his eyes for a better view. It also showed him rubbing his crotch. Apparently, he had been standing outside the window since about 3.40 a.m., 10 minutes after my initial arrival. At one point, it showed him going back to his car, only to re-emerge several minutes later and finally tap on the window. I was shocked to realize that the man had watched me for almost a full hour without my knowledge. I felt stupid, but most of all, scared. The footage also revealed that the man had his license plates covered with what appeared to be white paper. After reviewing the footage and the note, the police decided that the man posed a potential threat and that this behavior 
was not normal. Well, duh. They sent an undercover cop back to the stand with me. I was shocked that they wanted me to go right back to work, not even two hours after the incident. The cop sat outside in an SUV while I worked. The plan was this. If the man drove through again, I was to flick the open sign on and off to alert him of the man's presence. I worked, serving all of my regular customers, trying my best to pretend nothing had happened. I was told not to recall the incident to any of my co-workers or customers that morning, in case they knew the man and warned him of police involvement. The man didn't return that day, but he did return. Little did I know, that day was only the beginning of a year-long nightmare. Edit and Update While I had fully intended on updating this post with the subsequent recounting of other creepy occurrences involving this guy, I no longer wish to put my energy into recalling these events. But to those that have supported me, I do want to let you know that I'm fine now, and I will give you a quick synopsis of how things turned out. The stalking continued for a while, almost a year. The stalker left endless creepy gifts for me both at work and at my place of residence, all of which he signed off on as Turner. It got to a point where I couldn't prove it was him because it would often be sent by courier or a third party. He continued to come by the stand and at one point even promised to leave me alone. My coworker was there and we actually managed to have a very brief discussion in which he apologized and agreed that his behavior was inappropriate. However, he resumed his creepy behavior just days later. The police were of no help and kept insisting to me that it would all go away if I just quit my job. I had his license plate, which was out of state, and a vehicle description, but apparently the car wasn't even registered. Despite taking a leave of absence, the stalking continued. I didn't want to quit my job, as this was shortly after the recession. My mom, the sole provider for a family of five, had lost her job, so I wanted to chip in and help her so we wouldn't lose the house. Other bikini stands in the area were not hiring, due to being embroiled in prostitution scandals, all of which were heavily covered by the national media. You have no idea how hard it was, and maybe still is, to get a quote, normal job, after having worked as a bikini barista. Apparently, employers don't like it on your job history too much. A few of the scariest incidents were being assaulted at an ice freezer outside of the coffee stand. Thankfully, he didn't harm me physically, just grabbed me and touched me inappropriately. Turner coming through the drive-thru completely naked while touching himself into a pair of women's underwear. Another incident occurred when my friend gave me a joint that a customer had left for me on her shift. Crazy as it may sound, my regulars fairly often would leave joints in my tip jar instead of money. I asked my coworker for the customer's name, but she didn't get a chance to ask for it. I was told by my coworker that the man had long hair and looked like a hippie, and this fit the description of a customer who would regularly leave me joints in the tip jar. I smoked the joint before I went to sleep one night, only to have a massive freakout. Full-on hallucinations, hysteria. I literally thought I saw ghosts, demons, and fire. I ended up in the hospital. I found out there that, in addition to having THC in my system, I also had a bunch of PCP in there as well. Later on, Turner would take credit for this joint by sending a text to my phone, letting me know that if I wanted him to smoke me out, that we could get together sometime. I guess he thought that this weed was enjoyable. Of course, I gave his number to the police. 
I feel like I gave them enough info to get this guy, but I was just never taken seriously, or they had bigger fish to fry. They did find out, however, that the phone he used was a burner. Over this period of time, it was evident that one of my coworkers was sharing my personal information with Turner in exchange for money, or maybe just because she didn't like me. I don't know. This coworker was later arrested on prostitution charges. I ended up relocating and changing my last name, which is surprisingly easy to do. I did this primarily to get away from Turner, but also so I could get a fresh start with a new employment history and get away from the negative energy that had encircled my life. I had taken nude photos of myself from my boyfriend at the time, and after we broke up, he leaked them to everyone on my contact list, including my coworkers, so of course this meant Turner most likely got a hold of them as well. It may seem strange to you, but after a while, the stalking becomes part of your life. It's kind of like living around a bunch of rattlesnakes. You may feel constantly on guard and on edge, but eventually you work your daily routine around trying your best to avoid the snakes, just so you won't get bitten. When it happens, you do your best to move on. I recently found out that a man fitting my stalker's description was incarcerated some time ago for doing something even more frightening to another barista in the Pacific Northwest. There were also similar instances and reports of a man driving through bikini stands naked. I suspect that this man was most likely Turner. I can't be sure if it's the same person, as I was never able to find out this person's true first and last name. But I'm hopeful that it is him, and it'll be locked away for a very long time. I'm a woman, I'm Chinese, but I grew up in Sydney, Australia. However, I was born on the outskirts of Beijing, in a large town called Yungang Residential District, where my mom's family is from. When I was five, we immigrated to Australia, but my family would still travel back to China every few years. This incident happened in the snowy winter of 1997, when I was only 11 years old. My grandparents still lived in Yungang, and introduced me to a brother and sister who lived in the same building as them. I can't remember their exact ages, but I think the older girl was around 14 and the younger boy was around 6. I still remember the exact outfit that I was wearing when I met them, as I'd been wearing the same outfit the entire trip. At the time, flared jeans were in, and coming from Australia, I wasn't prepared for the snow and coldness of the Chinese winter. So on my first or second day there, my Chinese cousin had taken me to a shopping mall where she'd help me haggle down the price of a bright pink duffel coat with fluffy white trimming. I thought it was the most fashionable thing ever and wore it every day. I have photos of me from the trip wearing that exact outfit. We walked around town and ended up going to a very large park with a lake inside of it. It was a little bit of a distance from the center of town. We were playing by the shore, throwing rocks, joking around, and having a good time. At some point, I looked up and realized that it was near dusk, although it probably wasn't very late, but considering it was winter, the sun set early. The park, which had never been very busy to start with, was nearly deserted. There were still some other people there, but they were a fair distance away from us. All except for two men, who seemed to appear almost out of nowhere. They were middle to late middle-aged, the quote-unquote uncle type. One of them approached me and said he was a friend of my father's, and that my father had asked him to pick us up. 
I remember being utterly confused by this statement because my dad didn't live in this town and he was in another district about two hours away from Beijing where his family called home. Pretty quickly, I realized that something was off and so did that brother-sister combo I was with. We all started making excuses as we attempted to distance ourselves from these people. I remember very clearly that as we started backing away, the man who had approached us looked back over his shoulder at his companion, as if asking him what he should do. The companion was standing a little distance away, taking note of the surroundings, while appearing to motion towards the parking lot of the park, which, if I'm recalling this accurately, only had one vehicle in it at this moment, a large white van with sliding side doors. Even as a child, I completely believed that he was considering snatching one of us and making a run for it. However, perhaps because there were three of us, and maybe because there were still people around in the park, they didn't do anything. As we walked away rapidly, I looked back over my shoulder and remember seeing the two men just standing there, watching us as we went. That 15 to 20 minute walk back was one of the scariest walks in my life as I all but felt someone grabbing me from behind every few seconds. The sun set just as we got into the building and burst in through the door, so happy to be home safe. I told my mom and grandmother about it, but at the time, child kidnappings in China were much less of a massive and widespread news story as they are now. I think my mom especially felt that me being almost kidnapped was somehow a commentary on her parenting skills and was very dismissive then, and even now she dislikes it when I bring it up. Now that organized child or bride kidnappings are such a huge story in China, it often makes me shiver at night to think how different my fate could have been. There have been so many stories about young women, girls, kidnapped and forced into becoming brides of villagers in remote countrysides, sometimes tied to beds and having their legs broken to prevent them from running away. They're forced to bear children one after another. No one in the village will help them because almost all the men in the village have purchased brides from traffickers in this way. There's also stories of boys being kidnapped and placed into families who have been unable to have kids or adopt legally. They fare a bit better but can also be abused and neglected. Now that I have my own kids and we're safe and warmly tucked in my bed in Sydney, I sometimes think about how wildly and irrevocably my life might have been derailed that snowy evening in Yungang. All I can do is shudder and hold my kids tightly. Another good old story from South Africa. As people from there know, there's a lot of game farms, lodges, things of that sort, especially around the area of the Kruger National Park. This incident took place on a very tranquil, four-star game farm close to the southern tip of the above-mentioned Kruger National Park. We had frequented the lodge for over five years before this situation took place, as it was a favorite with me and my wife, who was then my girlfriend. The lodge had a very nice central area with a pool, a restaurant, and then the tented chalets were spread out around, with the furthest one about a kilometer from the restaurant. The chalets were very private and set up in the bush so you could not see the next one over and you could only hear your neighbors if they were being very loud. Sadly, 
The lodge has fallen on hard times and has gone backwards a bit. The weekend this incident took place, only two of the 25 plus units were occupied for the Friday night, and we were the only ones there for Saturday night. It made me feel a little uneasy. To make matters worse, the lodge farm manager came by on Saturday morning saying he was leaving the farm for the weekend, and if we needed anything, to just help ourselves in the restaurant fridges and leave a note, then we can settle the bill next week. Sure, no problem. We have the pool and jacuzzi all for ourselves. We left to go for a visit to the K&P after the manager left and stayed out most of the day. We got back around 3 p.m., and as we got out of the car, I got goosebumps. It was 35 degrees C, over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, so I definitely didn't get cold. As we approached the chalet, we parked maybe 150 meters from it, and had a little path that we walked down. But as we approached, I noticed big shoe prints over my and my girlfriend's prints from this morning. That seriously put me on edge. I approached the chalet, and noticed the prints turn around and walk back the way they came. Everything seemed to be in order at the chalet, so... I tried not to stress. We went for a swim and a bit of a game drive around the farm before returning at about 5.30. Started to make fire, barbecue the meat, and prepare some other food. But both me and my girlfriend seemed on edge, very quiet. We sat down to eat around 8 p.m. As we sat down, I looked at her. She had this unavoidable look of worry on her face. I asked her what was wrong. She said she had a bad feeling and that we have to go. I agreed with her, said that I felt the same, and that we needed to leave now, not after we ate, now. We chucked our food in the cooler, grabbed our bags, and ran to the car, jumped in and almost raced out of there. As we went out the gate, dropped the keys in the box, and drove away, the feeling of dread slowly faded. We made the 150-kilometer drive home in the dark and slept in our own bed. We woke up that Sunday and went about our day as normal. But about 4 p.m. that afternoon, my phone rings, and I see it's the number from the lodge manager. I answer, and he frantically asks if we're okay. I say, yeah, why? He starts explaining, and that's when my blood runs cold. Apparently, the lodge was broken into and ransacked that Saturday night. They took everything of value, and what they couldn't take, they destroyed. It was a group of five men that broke in. Apparently, there was evidence that they ransacked the chalet as well, but only one, the one my girlfriend and I were booked into. The one we would have been sleeping in had we not left so abruptly the previous night. This confirmed to me that they were watching us. The lodge had cameras, but the chalets did not. We left just after 8 p.m., probably about 8.10 by the time we got everything in the car and began driving, no later than 8.20 when we left the farm, as it's about two kilometers from the lodge to the gate down a gravel road, and the cameras caught the first signs of movement at the lodge just before 8.30 p.m. At least one man was visibly armed with a firearm, and a few had machetes. I shudder to think what could have happened had we been there. The nearest people would have been over three kilometers away, and we were completely alone on that farm. Only a little bit of cell reception at the lodge, and absolutely none at the chalet itself. 
we wouldn't have even been able to call for help. Needless to say, we did not go to lodges or isolated areas for a long time after that. And sadly, the lodge and farm went under not long after. The incident shocked us both more than just a bit, and we vowed to always trust our instinct and intuition, and to tell each other if something felt off. We both had that uneasy feeling since about 3 p.m. that afternoon when we came back, but the reason that neither of us said anything was because we didn't want to spoil the weekend for the other. That almost cost us the ultimate price. So the lesson to be learned here is trust your gut. Trust your partner's gut feeling. If something feels off, it's because it probably is. It may just as well save your life. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.